Strangers, I have a super special announcement. Strange and Unexplained is taking to the stage this spring with a small handful of live shows in New York City, Boston, and D.C. This is a dream come true for me, and I hope you can join me on this maiden voyage. My live show at ObsessFest 2022 was the highlight of my year. Getting to connect with strangers and actually hear laughter IRL is a high I am still living off of. Come yell Not Today Bob with me in real life at one of my live shows this spring. There's going to be a chance to say hi and take pictures after the show. You can find all the details on our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, but here are the dates. April 3rd at the Bell House in Brooklyn, April 20th at the Crystal Ballroom in Boston, and April 23rd at Union Stage in Washington, D.C. We've linked to all the ticket links in our show notes here, and you can also find more information on our website. See you there. The human urge to believe in something bigger than ourselves, to search for answers from above or beyond, can go awry, and has in history, mostly within religious movements. And one such movement in the mid-19th century United States took two girls and their followers on a whirlwind journey that would leave a mark and make for a fantastic story. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who may be dipping my toe into the world of tarot, but will be damned before I join a ghost hunting expedition. Film yourself in green night vision and put it on the Discovery Channel all you want. You're not fooling me in your voyeuristic quest to recreate the Blair Witch Project. The story we'll be following over the next two episodes takes a different form of ghostly conversation. Knockings. We'll learn about how two girls who observed some weird sounds in their home would go on to conjure more communications elsewhere, and for many, to hear and see. Their work would go far enough to establish a new religion, called American Spiritualism, centered around their methods of speaking with the dead. And, like many founders of new religions, their efforts were not always met with celebration. Indeed, like many founders of new religions, they found themselves scorned and spurned. It would be more than a century after their tragic deaths that they would get the real recognition they may or may not have actually earned. Here's the story of the Fox sisters. Margareta and her sister Catherine Fox were the youngest two children of the six surviving children born to John and Margaret Fox. Their father, John, a blacksmith, and their mother, Margaret, had separated at some point after their fourth child was born in 1820 when Margaret could no longer tolerate John's alcoholism. If the couple hadn't reunited, Maggie and Kate would never have been born, and I wouldn't be about to tell you this fantastically strange and unexplained story. Maggie was born in 1834 and Kate two years later. The family moved several times while Maggie and Kate were young, finally settling in Hydesville, New York, in the Finger Lakes region east of Rochester in 1847. They stayed in a temporary cottage next to John Smithy while their permanent home was being built. The town of Hydesville was absolutely a Thomas Kincaid painting, nestled in the dynamic wilderness of New York State with rolling green hills, fertile farmland, and a bustling port thanks to the newly built Erie Canal. 
The Fox family drew very little attention when they moved in and were described by their neighbors as sober, respectable Methodists. But the Fox's respectability was about to be put to the test. As American Heritage put it, quote, John and Margaret rented a small frame cottage on Hydesville Road for themselves and the two girls. There was a drawback. The cottage, reputedly, was haunted. Since Margaret was superstitious, such stories undoubtedly distressed her, end quote. One wonders if the cabin was reputedly haunted, why this wasn't made plain to the Foxes before they rented it. Maybe it was. Maybe the listing was like, you'll love this warm, spirited cabin. You know, the way they call a studio in New York City cozy when they really mean it's the size of a walk-in closet. Anyway, the Foxes settled in for the winter and apparently had to wait for construction to commence on their permanent house until spring, because in the old days, I guess, people didn't build things in the winter? According to a now-defunct page of the website National Spiritualist Association of Churches, by March of 1848, the family began to notice, quote, manifestations of an unknown origin, unquote, most often heard as a rapping or knocking sound. The knocking seemed to be coming from the East Room, which was the bedroom shared by the two sisters, Maggie and Kate. Oddly, though, the knocking only happened when one or both of the girls were awake, Apparently, if they were both asleep, there were no manifestations of anything except a good night's sleep. Margaret would later tell journalist E.E. E. Lewis, It sounded like someone knocking in the east bedroom on the floor. Sometimes it sounded as if the chair moved on the floor. We could hardly tell where it was. That first night that we heard the rapping, we all got up and lit a candle and searched all over the house. The noise continued while we were hunting and was heard near the same place all the time. It was not very loud, yet it produced a jar on the bedsteads and chairs that could be felt by placing our hands on the chair or while we were in bed. A jar? Say what? An invisible jar? A jar that wasn't there before? Did it have something yummy in it like strawberry preserves or bread and butter pickles? Just kidding. It's just old-timey talk for there was a space between the bed and the wall. According to Atlas Obscura, the knocking would go on for hours every night, keeping the family awake, leaving them confused, scared, and exhausted. Strangers, you know how much I like my sleep. I would not have put up with this shit longer than it takes for you to say there's no such thing as ghosts. A couple days of this nonsense and I would have been out of there. But not Mrs. Fox. She told journalist E.E. E. Lewis, On Friday night, the 31st of March, we concluded to go to bed early and not let it disturb us. If it came, we thought we would not mind it, but try and get a good night's rest. It was very early when we went to bed on this night. Hardly dark. We went to bed so early because we had been broken so much of our rest that I was almost sick. But almost immediately, the noises began once again. My husband had not gone to bed when we first heard the noise on this evening. I had just laid down. It commenced as usual. I knew it from all of the noises I had ever heard in this house. On this night, though, something different happened. The noises weren't occurring at random. Instead, according to E.E. E. Lewis's reporting, the noises seemed to almost be communicating with Margaret's two daughters. He wrote, quote, 
The girls, who slept in the other bed in the room, heard the noise and tried to make a similar noise by snapping their fingers. The youngest girl is about 12 years old. She is the one who made her hand go. As fast as she made the noise with her hands and fingers, the sound was followed up in the room. It did not sound any different at that time, only it made the same number of noises that the girl did. When she stopped, the sound itself stopped for a short time. The other girl, who was in her 15th year, then spoke in sport and said, Now do just as I do. Count one, two, three, four, etc., striking one hand and the other at the same time. The blows which she made were repeated as before. It appeared to answer her by repeating every blow that she made. She only did so once. She then began to be startled. End quote. Now, according to a piece on AmericanHeritage.com by Barbara M. Weisberg titled, They Spoke with the Dead, at this point, Kate said, Oh, Mother, I know what it is. Tomorrow is April Fool Day and someone is trying to fool us. Although this account doesn't show up in E.E. Lewis's version, it does appear in some transcriptions of Mrs. Fox's account. And if this did happen, some think Kate may have been trying to confess to a prank and it went right over Mrs. Fox's head. Instead of just being like, wait, are you guys punking me? She seemed to double down, deciding to communicate with the thing. She told E.E. Lewis, And then I spoke and said to the noise, count ten, and it made ten strokes or noises. Then I asked the ages of my different children successively, and it gave a number of raps corresponding to the ages of my children. I then asked if it was a human being that was making the noise, and if it was to manifest it by the same noise. There was no noise. I then asked if it was a spirit, and if it was to manifest it by two sounds. I heard the two sounds as soon as the words were spoken. I then asked if it was an injured spirit to give me the sound, and I heard the rapping distinctly. I then asked if it was injured in this house, and it manifested by the noise, if the person was living that injured it, and got the same answer. I then ascertained, by the same method, that its remains were buried under the dwelling, and how old it was. When I asked how many years old it was, it rapped thirty-one times. That it was a male, that it had left a family of five children. It had two sons and three daughters, all living. I asked if it left a wife, and it rapped. If its wife was living, no rapping. And if she was dead, and the rapping was distinctly heard. How long had she been dead? And it rapped twice. This was like a really long game of 20 questions. Can you imagine how many questions Mrs. Fox had to ask to come around to, were you buried under this house? Then Mrs. Fox was like, okay, I'm going to invite some people over to chat with you. Cool? And the spirit apparently answered back, cool. Mrs. Fox invited over a neighbor, Mrs. Redfield, who apparently didn't have a first name. Anyway, she came over thinking the whole matter was a childish joke until the spirit perfectly wrapped her age. Mrs. Redfield then told her husband he had to come check it out, and pretty soon a dozen or so people were standing in the Fox's cottage playing Guess Who with a knocking spirit. 
According to a piece in the Paris Review from 2016, the small crowd ascertained that the spirit was the ghost of a 31-year-old peddler who'd been killed for $500 by the previous owner of the cottage, who then buried them under the cellar. Not only that, but according to E.E. Lewis, they also learned that the peddler had had his throat cut with a butcher knife and, quote, that the body did not remain in the room next day, but that it was taken down cellar and that it was not buried until the next night, that it was not taken down there through the outside door, but through the buttery down the stairway, that it was buried 10 feet below the surface of the ground, end quote. Again, those are some super specific answers to get from just knocking. Also, I have never heard of anyone entering through the buttery. Sounds slick. Anyway, the next day, there were upwards of 300 people jammed into the fox's modest cottage. The excited crowd went down to the cellar and began digging, trying to find the bones of the murdered peddler. Unfortunately, they were soon met with groundwater and had to stop digging for fear that the house would flood. The people of Hydesville, who were whipped up into a frenzy by a mysterious knocking, had no idea that they were helping to start what Karen Abbott at the Smithsonian Magazine called, quote, one of the greatest religious movements of the 19th century. As rumor of a spirit communicating with the living began to spread, people from nearby towns swarmed into Hydesville to either see for themselves or to be like Esmeralda in Edward Scissorhands and just stand there yelling Bible verses about Satan and being damned to hell. According to American Heritage, in addition to knocking, apparently the spirit was now able to make a gruesome gurgling sound that sounded like a person struggling to breathe after their throat had been cut. But before too long, people began to notice that no matter who was present for the knocking and gurgling, one fact remained constant. Either Maggie or Kate were always there when the phantom sounds were heard. This led some to believe the girls were hoaxing them. For others, it was proof that these girls were special and could communicate with the dead. According to HistoryNet.com, quote, emotions ran so high in their nearby Methodist Episcopal Church that ultimately the minister asked the Fox family to leave the congregation. In his view, the girls had engaged in unholy practices and their parents must be held accountable, end quote. What would Jesus do? Probably not kick people out of his congregation. This was when journalist E.E. Lewis came into the picture. HistoryNet.com refers to Lewis as an attorney. I don't know what kind of law he practiced or why he thought writing about this mysterious knocking situation going on in Hydesville would be a good idea. One would think a lawyer might want to steer clear of this kind of thing, but for whatever reason, E.E. Lewis leaned all the way in, interviewing the family and other witnesses and publishing a pamphlet called A Report of the Mysterious Noises Heard in the House of John D. Fox in Hydesville, Arcadia, Wayne County in May of 1848. Now, stranger, I get it. You're probably wondering halfway through episode one of this series how a whole new religion could spring up from two girls, some ghosts rapping, and the interest of nosy neighbors and beyond. We are at a key inflection point in this story with the entrance of another Fox sister. 
One person who got their hands on the pamphlet was Margaret Fox's eldest child, Leah Fox Fish, Maggie and Kate's 33-year-old sister who was living in Rochester. For background, Leah had married when she was just 14 years old. Apparently, according to Leah's autobiography, quote, Mr. Fish discovered when too late that he had married a child and soon became indifferent to his home and family, end quote. So basically, they got married, she had a kid, and then he realized Leah was only 14 and was like, I'm out. Sounds like some real fishy behavior from Mr. Fish. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll see myself out. By the time Leah caught wind of her family's shenanigans over in Hydesville, she had not remarried and was supporting herself and her daughter by teaching music. So Leah hightailed it to her parents' cottage, which was only 30 miles away but literally meant booking passage on a ship. Leah's expediency may have had less to do with concern for her family's well-being, you know, having been tossed out of their church and being seen as pariahs by some of their community, and more about the possible fulfillment of a prophecy. She had just read The Divine Principles of Nature, a best-selling book by Andrew Jackson Davis based on the writings of a theologian, scientist, and mystic from the 18th century named Emanuel Swedenborg. Davis and Swedenborg promoted the idea that our world is simply a reflection or a shadow of the spirit world. Even though most humans were unaware of it, they claimed, spirits were in constant contact with us. Davis predicted that soon there would be a demonstration of this connection between humans and the spirit world, and that would establish an era of free and open communication between the two realms. Leah was like, oh my God, you guys, my sisters are fulfilling the prophecy. And when she got there and saw what her sisters could do, Leah saw something even better than a prophecy foretold. She saw a business opportunity. And so Leah arrived in Hydesville to see her sisters and hopefully the dawn of a new era of communication with the great beyond. It's unclear whether she shared the writings of Jackson Davis and Swedenborg with her family on this visit, but she sure saw potential in what was going on, and she acted upon it. Leah's first order of business was to move her sisters to Rochester with her. I don't know what the outward reasoning for this was. Like, so far the girls had only communicated with the one spirit who was buried under the house they were living in. So I guess she was hoping that everyone would just take it on faith that they could communicate with other spirits in other places. And she probably said some line like, uh, we need to show the wider world your extraordinary gifts. Mrs. Fox was not about to be left behind though, and she joined her three daughters in Rochester too. Leah then apparently appointed herself official spirit-knocking interpreter, which must have been quite a blow to Mrs. Fox, who had been interpreting the knocks just fine herself this whole time, thank you very much. I would imagine she was like, hey, I'm the one who found out that there was a murdered peddler with his throat slit over $500 buried in our cellar. And Leah was probably like, shh, yes, we know. Good job. Now move aside, boomer. 
turns out, Leah's decision to move the operation to Rochester was good for business. Rochester was a hotbed for new religious movements throughout the 19th century. Why that's the case, I don't know. Maybe it was something in the water? According to the Smithsonian Magazine, quote, the same vicinity, the Finger Lakes region of New York State, gave birth to both Mormonism and Millerism, end quote. Millerism, which I had to look up, was a religion founded by a dude named William Miller who convinced people that he'd figured out that Jesus was going to return in April of 1843 and that all the people who Jesus liked would get to go to heaven on October 23rd, 1844. Thousands of people across the U.S. believed this, and some went so far as to sell all their possessions as October 23rd approached. One wonders where they thought Jesus was, since he was supposed to have arrived in April of the previous year. Spoiler alert, Jesus did not come back, and his buddies did not ascend to heaven in 1844, or at any time after. Although one could easily convince me that Judgment Day has come and gone, and I, in fact, have been left behind because life's been feeling pretty hellish for a few years now. Anyway... The very first people Leah invited to witness the miracle that was her sister's communicating with the Shadow Realm was a Quaker couple named Isaac and Amy Post. The Posts were skeptical of the entire concept of spiritualism, and besides, they were way too busy doing actual important work like abolitionism and assisting with the Underground Railroad to free enslaved people. When Leah first told the Posts about her sister, they apparently laughed and asked her if her family was suffering from a psychological delusion. Leah's choice in the Posts was spot on because they were well-connected thinkers in Rochester who just so happened to have lost several children very young to illnesses. It also didn't hurt that spiritualism, as explained by HistoryNet.com, promoted a belief in, quote, the notion of a collective spirit, a benevolent force that endowed each human being with the capacity to right the world's wrongs, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, or other religious affiliations, end quote. And as Quakers, the Posts believed in equality. During the so-called seance, the Posts became convinced that they were communicating with their dead children. So, with the posts in their corner, word truly began to spread around town regarding the Fox sisters and their gift of communicating with those on the other side. Before long, Leah moved the family into a bigger house in which they could entertain groups of visitors for a dollar each and perform seances. According to HistoryNet.com, quote, Once guests arrived, they sat around a table, recited an opening prayer, and sang. After joining hands and sitting in silence, Maggie or Katie fell into a trance. Then the audience heard the faint sound of ghostly raps, end quote. Either Maggie or Kate could be in attendance, but Leah, as their official interpreter, was a constant. But just as the sisters were besieged with requests from believers to contact their long-lost loved ones, members of the local clergy, as well as local citizens, were not pleased. Accusations of evil, heresy, insanity, and, of course, witchcraft were hurled at the sisters. As was the case in Hydesville, so it was in Rochester. Religion is funny that way. Where there are believers, there are always staunch non-believers. But here's the thing about money. It can make people feel invincible. And when the prospect of riches are just within reach, it doesn't always matter what kind of accusations are being thrown your way. 
In the face of making money, many people, it seems, will keep doing whatever they want until they get officially canceled, and some even after that. And so, in November of 1849, the Fox sisters rented out Corinthian Hall, the biggest auditorium in Rochester, because, Leah announced, the spirits had demanded that they publicize spiritualism to a wider audience. Those are some thirsty spirits. For four nights, beginning on November 14th, at 25 cents per ticket, with the help of Eliab Capron, who was, according to American Heritage, an early historian of the American spiritualism movement, hundreds of people listened to a lecture about the manifestations and heard the muffled rappings of the spirit that was apparently eagerly trying to communicate with them. The crowd on the first night was very skeptical and jeered and hissed. According to HistoryNet.com, after the first show, quote, an outraged group of citizens demanded that a committee of Rochester's most prominent citizens examine Maggie and Leah to discover the source of the sounds. The following morning, the sisters complied, but following the committee's investigation, its members remained perplexed. That Thursday night, a committee representative confessed to the rest of audience their inability to explain the phenomenon, end quote. That answer did not appease the skeptics, and after each show, an angry crowd demanded the girls be examined again. American Heritage wrote about the examinations this way. The investigators held their feet, placed the young women in different positions, made them stand on glass plates with their skirts tied tightly around their ankles, even listened to their lungs with a stethoscope. The female contingent of the audience played its own vital role. As Capron wrote, a committee of ladies took the young women into a room, disrobed them, and examined their persons and clothing. Maggie and Leah apparently cried with shame, but they emerged disgraced. Throughout the proceedings, according to committee members, raps resounded on the floors, doors, and walls, end quote. By the fourth night, the crowd was practically riotous. Someone found a barrel of warm tar in a hallway, presumably meant for tarring the Fox sisters. Once a committee had again been compelled to come up with a logical explanation, which apparently they could not, people got real pissed. Screaming, stomping, lighting firecrackers. Furious crowd members charged the girls with concealing lead balls in their skirts to make the sounds. Finally, the girls had to be escorted off the stage and out of the auditorium by police. The press obviously went wild over this story with some skepticism of its own, despite no conclusive findings from these committee inspections. One reporter from the New York Tribune even wrote, quote, It is difficult to understand why spirits who act with as little reason as children or idiots would spend time thumping the wall, end quote. Which presents a super fair question. You have the whole of the universe at your disposal and all you can do is knock? Come on. But, as you know, no press is bad press, just ask the Kardashians. And this bad press just helped skyrocket the Fox sisters to fame. The various committees that had subjected the girls to examinations after their shows at Corinthian Hall unanimously acquitted the girls of fraud. And with this, the Fox sisters solidified their position as the spokespeople for the new spiritualism movement. The believers in Rochester rejoiced, but the Fox sisters had already set their sights on a wider audience. 
Next week, we'll travel with the Fox sisters as they took their act on the road and spread the good word of spiritualism to audiences in New York City, across the country, and into Europe through a series of knocks and taps. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, we'll continue and conclude the twisty and tragic tale of the Fox sisters. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story for something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Jordan Kai Burnett and Andrea Jones-Sojola. We're going on tour. To check out tour dates and get your tickets, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation. <laughs>